breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back, everybody. It is Zudi Jasser back for another week of Reform This, the Blaze TV podcast. It's always great to be with you. And uh, if you're coming back, thank you. We have a lot to talk about this week. If you're new, I hope you're looking for frank conversation about radical Islam, political Islam, the ideas that threaten us, the divisions between westernized, modernized Muslims and those that are apologists or Islamists. Look at uh, the issues of the day. And uh, also take some deep dives into issues that uh, the mainstream media, traditional media, often ignore or misrepresent. On this program, you and I together can travel into conversations about stereotypes, about ideology, about faith, about the need for reform. And what needs to be reformed? Because I think that often is what's missed. It's just, oh, it's about violence, it's about terrorism, and now there's a root cause. It's an ideology, and I believe it's political Islam. And week after week, I, it sure enough becomes obvious what the source and the root causes are. This week, there are a couple uh, major events that happened. One was a, a conference, a launch of the... Muslim Caucus Collective. I mean, I mean, the name itself sounds Islamist. <laughs> we'll get to it in a second. And also some more viral conversations about Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, a video that some claimed after it was quote-unquote doctored, misrepresented what she said. We'll actually listen to that. And in that Muslim Caucus Collective that launch in Washington of the Islamist Olympics, as I call them, um, there was an interaction in which Ilhan Omar's clip was played on mainstream media and also went viral in which she had a self-righteous, indignant response that we need to hear. So first, Mahdi Hassan. Mahdi Hassan is a Islamist sympathizer. He's paid by Al Jazeera, the the world's leading Islamist media arm that basically has reports are that 90% of its producers, its staff are Muslim Brotherhood sympathizers or actually card-carrying members of the Muslim Brotherhood since El-Sisi went back into power and the Brotherhood escaped Egypt, most of them, and went to Qatar. And sure enough, Al Jazeera is the state media arm of Qatar. It's their state-sponsored media. And it is part of the axis of political Islam, the Islamists. It apologizes for Iran. A lot of that comes to the relationship between Qatar and Iran and their economic cooperation and natural gas fields and all otherwhere and, and other places. But bottom line is, is ideologically... Mahdi Hassan and his programs up front and elsewhere, and then now he's been starting to pop up not only with columns on Huffington Post, but 
on CNN. And CNN always fails to recognize that he is an operative of Qatar. He's an operative of the Islamist media arm of a state agency of a foreign power. That's sympathetic to Iran. That's sympathetic to Turkey and Erdogan tyranny. He's just presented as a Muslim correspondent. And even sometimes they, they call him a reporter. The guy's not a reporter. He's a pundit and an op-ed opinionator. <laughs> so Mehdi Hassan has a program called Upfront. He interviewed Ilhan Omar back in February 2018. And this video clip started making the rounds again. Why? Because Ilhan Omar, in response to a question that Mahdi asked her about concerns about jihad, had some of the typical responses that some of us reformists get our ire, our dander up about, which is apologetics that are just offensive. So let's listen to it. And this is not the doctored one. This is the full response she had to his questions about whether Americans should be concerned about Muslims and the threat they have in radicalization and jihadism. So hold on. A lot of conservatives in particular would say that the rise in Islamophobia is a result not of hate, but of fear, a legitimate fear, they say, of quote-unquote jihadist terrorism, whether it's Fort Hood or San Bernardino or the recent truck attack in New York. Uh, what do you say to them? I would say uh, uh, our, our country should be more fearful um, of, of, of white men across our country because they are actually um, causing uh, most of the deaths within this country. Um, and so if fear was the, the driving force of, of, of policies to keep America safe, Americans safe inside of this country, um, we should be uh, profiling, monitoring, um, and, uh, and, and creating policies to fight the radicalization of white men. But the, most of the funding and attention, even under Obama, obviously went towards Muslim communities. One of those communities is in Minnesota, uh, your state, the Somali-American community in Minnesota, where I think over the past few years, more than 20 young Somali-Americans have left uh, to go and fight for ISIL or Al-Shabaab or one of these quote-unquote jihadist groups abroad. That's a real threat, obviously. No one's pretending it's not a threat. So what do you do about it? But I mean, I think, it, like I said, the the the, the focus of of our um, uh, policies uh, should should be about keeping Americans safe, keeping us domestically uh, safe, and 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 where we actually find a solution is looking at um, our our foreign policy, looking at how we are engaging with um, uh, these the, the members of these these communities, uh, and 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 the kind of rhetoric, right, like that is being. Um, spewed out of leaders within our, our, our city halls, within our state capitals, and 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 within um, our our nation's capital. Some would um, say some would say that's true. There's some really bad rhetoric coming from uh, politicians, security leaders, etc. But also a lot of bad rhetoric coming from Muslim community leaders, oh, imams, etc. Good question. Is that fair? 
I think bo both of those statements could be true, and I th and I think you know it just goes to show what happens when you have uh, segments within communities um, that that are uh, using fear and hate um, to mobilize uh, their base. Um, and, and, it, and it is important for us to actually have a conversation about what kind of communities we are trying to build and what this nation actually stands for. In an interview last year, you said your campaign for state office was about more than you. It was about shifting, quote, the narrative about what is possible. For those outside of the U.S., we have a global audience watching, who look at the current U.S. president, maybe think he defines the U.S. now, his anti-immigrant, anti-minority, anti-Muslim sentiment. Do you see your story as a kind of foil, a counter-narrative to that? Are you personally the anti-Trump? What, what I represent is, is, is an America that, that still allows people to, to fulfill that American dream. That you can come here at the age of 12 only knowing two phrases in English have the opportunity to put yourself through school and ultimately defeat a 44-year incumbent um, to win uh, a seat at the table. Okay. I, I mean, listen, first of all, I'm going to start at the end there. There's no doubt that I've said this frequently, that often her arrogance and narcissism is belied by the fact that she represents somebody that has succeeded, and she just said so. She said this back in February 2018, so maybe she had a little bit of ounce of humility there, but even the way she said that, she said, I represent. It's interesting. You know, most of us whose families escaped tyranny, and if somebody asked us what we represent, I'd say, let others determine what I represent. Really, humility would demand that you not define what you are. And she does that frequently, frequently, in which she says, this is what I am and this is what I represent. The The narcissism is, is unbelievable. But then you listen to, even at the beginning of that conversation, now we can get into, if you look at the Washington Post's uh, uh, criticism, Marco Rubio's retweet of... There was a clipping that was done of this video. I don't know uh, who had produced it, uh, but instead of those three minutes that I played for you, it was clipped down to one and a half or two. And it was felt that by removing her comments about American security and safety and simply talking about white men, that it proved that she was a bigot. And the Washington Post gave Marco Rubio four Pinocchios as dishonest because by re by posting a video that clipped it out her comments about american security that that proved that it was being manipulated to simply say that she was the bigot and avoid the fact that she cared about american security listen <laughs> i am here to tell you and i played that for you because it is revolting ladies and gentlemen it's revolting the way she mumbles over and over, she couldn't. Mahdi Hassan, even when he asked the question, said these jihadist groups, quote-unquote, 
uh, some people say they come from your district in the Somali community and join quote unquote jihadist. He puts the scare quotes because they're maybe not jihadi, they're just crazies, I guess. No, they're jihadist groups. And he said, like El Shabab and ISIL. And then she never uses the word jihad. She never talks about Muslim radicalism in her answer. The closest she gets was when he asked her about radicalized imams. She said, well, we have segments in the communities, including white men and Muslims. Didn't say that. She talked freely about white men, but never used the term Muslim. So as Majid Nawaz and so many reformers have said, how do you tell a reformer from an Islamist? Islamists always jump to false equivalencies. Never talk about Muslim ownership, never take responsibility, never talk about what we need to fix, how we need to reform, what are the ideas that led to radicalizations on things that we can fix, and they simply talk about the other. They deflect, they dodge, and they delay. Deflect, dodge, and they delay, and dissimulate. They avoid the conversation about the ideas that radicalize, And even if you do the numbers, ladies and gentlemen, here in the United States, if 75% of the population is white, and some say 60%, so you have 330 million Americans, if it's 60%, you're talking 200 million whites. If you're talking 500 to 1,000 acts of terrorism, over the last 15 years, however many. And they're saying 75%. The Washington Post said, well, that is proportional to their race. Numbers. But that's not what we talk about. When you talk about that, the sheer numbers, the sheer numbers of a population that's 4 million commits 40, 50 acts of terrorism. And that is the tip of the iceberg globally when you have fonts of production that include regimes that are controlling the governments of 56 countries. And most of them are tyrannies and theocracies, be they Iran, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Turkey. And now backs backsliding some of these other countries, Egypt and elsewhere, the, the the ideology emanating from their schools, from their mosques, is horrific. And we have the opportunity here to, in the United States, which has become in many ways collateral damage, but it's not necessarily collateral because the biggest existential threat to radical Islamism and theocratic Islam globally, if you have 1.7 billion Muslims, and the Islamists are 500 to 800 million, 30 to 40%. Those numbers are enormous. And to compare that in a conversation to white men and focus down, drill down the conversation simply about American security. Yeah, American security is the most important aspect to a lot of this conversation, but then... She initiated the conversation talking again about the same Islamist nonsense, 
which just frustrates and should really madden most Americans, which is she talked about foreign policy and demonization, the same old nonsense, never acknowledging ideology, never acknowledging any of that. This was back when she was in the beginning of her campaign in February 2018. She hadn't uh, been elected yet. She was in the state legislature, but she hadn't been elected. So, ladies and gentlemen, the 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 inability of the media, inability of the of our country to have a conversation that listens to that nonsense and does not pull out the fact. You even had folks like Mustafa Akiol removing a tweet where he retweeted the video and said, oh, I removed it because it misrepresented what she said. Really? I thought he was a scholar. Listening to her full video is complete horse crap. It is. The full clip doesn't acknowledge any ideological need for reform and simply just labels it as possibly we might have a little bit of segments of hate or whatever, but or fear. But that's because of foreign policy and other things. She never uses the term jihad. Don't we have to reform against Islamist identity politics, against radicalization and identity separatist movements? Why is the largest movements of jihadists coming from her district? Why did the Bureau and Homeland Security want to launch pilot programs there that she and the Islamists that she raises money for, the Council on American Islamic Relations, fought tooth and nail to prevent any success of the CVE programs, countering violent extremism programs in her district. Why did she testify publicly that an ISIS operative that committed treason against this country and, and, and participated in slavery of women and torture of Yazidis should have their sentence shortened because was due to the 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 brainwashing and, and lack of understanding of what they were participating seriously. So she's able to vocalize minimization and apologetics for Islamism and even radical Islamism without any track record of coming to terms with radicalization. This is not, you know, listen, she has a platform now with millions of followers uh, and uh, uh, almost every one of her moves is being followed, etc., which is an opportunity. And what is she going to do with that opportunity? Can she speak truth to power? The power of Erdogan, the power of imams like Omar Suleiman and Siraj Wahaj, whose children and grandchildren were radicalized and had terror camps. Is she talking about that? Is she talking about female genital mutilation? Which we're going to talk about in a second where You'll hear what she told another Muslim reformer. Now, her primary flag, her primary operational lens with which she looks at her identity, her narcissistic identity, is as an Islamist, as part of this lobby. Her primary constituency and movement is part of the Islamist lobby in America, primarily as an American Islamist, but also globally as countering the influence of American foreign policy and promoting the influence of the OIC Islamists, the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, 
foreign policy. If I'm wrong, please correct me. Send me send me clips of of her fighting the OIC, the Turks and the Qatars, Qataris and the Iranians. No. She actually promotes the red green axis, the Maduros and the relationship of the socialists and the Islamists of the world. Oh, she might be critical of the Saudis, but the Saudis now have taken on the Islamists. I'm no fan of the Wahhabists. Wahhabism is part of the cancer of our ideology globally, but she doesn't take on Wahhabism. She takes on the Saudi government. Let's hear her take on Wahhabism ideologically. Now, let's talk about this Muslim collective in Washington this week. You saw the launch of a Muslim collective for equitable democracy. Yeah, that's what it's called, the Muslim collective for equitable democracy. And if if political Islam was a sport, the convening members of this collective conference in Washington would basically be in the American Islamist Olympic finals. <laughs> They're the dream team of the Islamist all-stars, and that's who was listed as sponsors of this conference this week. You know, in the past 50 years, many of these leaders hid behind sort of mantras like reviving the Islamic spirit or social justice for all or fighting Islamophobia, which is just simply supposedly about anti-bigotry. But no, now this Muslim caucus, they openly seek on their website Muslim power and all of whatever that means to them. How fitting that their slogan is Muslim Americans organizing to win. Muslim Americans organizing to win. And here's the summary statement of what they are. It says to the Muslims that attend this conference, and and actually I want you to think about just think in your head for a second. What did the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt before they formed say about their goals for Egypt in the mid-20th century? It was early 20th century, but as they fought Nasser, etc. What were they? What were their founding issues? And then when they won an election, 2013. Sorry, 2000 revolution in Egypt was 2011. Their election then was six, 12 months later, 2012 or so. Then they left office, I think, in 2013 when they were ousted. But when they were getting together, what was their mission? This Muslim Caucus of Education Collective said, this is our moment, quote, this is our moment to come together and organize as one constituency, bridge traditional advocacy and policy organizations and grassroots groups to work together in building Muslim American electoral power at the local, state, and national level to build our power beyond 2020. To work together. Sounds like ummah, doesn't it? Ummah means in Arabic faith community and also means state. To work together in building Muslim American electoral power. Electoral power. That by definition is political Islam at the local, state, and national level to build our power beyond 2020. That verbiage, ladies and gentlemen, is synchronon of political Islam and its attendant Islamist movement. <laughs> I'm sure Hassan al-Benn, if he were alive, the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, 
Maulana Maududi of Pakistan's founder of the Jamaat Islami, or Recep, or Recep Erdogan, the current head of the AKP, which is the Muslim Brotherhood of Turkey, or Ayatollah Khomeini, head of Iran's Islamic Supreme Council, would all be so, so, so proud of these aspiring Islamists. They're no longer doing dissimulation or taqiyah. They openly now had a conference about Muslim power in the electoral arena. And the 2020 hopefuls on the Democratic ticket were tripping over themselves to do videos. Elizabeth Warren piped in a video. Cory Booker, Bill de Blasio came in and did a conference and a panel. He spoke to them. I couldn't find anything where he actually said issues related to things that I think need reform, whether it's anti-Semitism or counter-terrorism, radicalization, separatism, Islamism. No. He talked to them about socialism, about bigotry against them that exists. The same old Islamist talking points. But then he tweeted later in the day to the rest of America about how he wants to fight anti-Semitism. But yet when he talked to a group that I believe has a huge preponderance of anti-Semites, he couldn't say a word about it because they're pandering to these guys. They're pandering to them. They may say that the, the they're Islamists. They're not Islamists. They're far different from Khomeini, from uh, Hassan al-Banna or Maududi. But their attempt to collectivize and empower Muslims as one political and national identity sprouts directly from the seeds of 20th century political Islam. And we, especially on this program, we cannot ignore the fact that that is undergirded by most of the Islamic teachings and interpretations of Sharia that are theocratic or Islamist. And we see them in all the major Sunni schools of thought. We see it in the major Shia schools of thought that are based on Islamic State Sharia imposition. Classically liberal anti-Islamist reformers are a minority among Muslim leaders. We're not part of the establishment. This establishment formed and had their founding conference in Washington this week. And yes, Ilhan Omar was there to speak. Now, some would say there were some organizations, there was one, you know, Muslims for Progressive Values, that is a feminist, pro-gay rights organization that is far left. And I still have no idea why they were there, why they sponsored it, but they may tell you, and I don't want to speak for them, but they may tell you that, well, they want to be engaged in a platform that should be diverse, and they bring some diversity to that. And I would say that the Islamists never allow diversity. They want to manipulate, shame, and perpetuate their honor culture. And they will use minority voices when they control the platform like they do at conferences like this, which was basically a founding of the Islamist party. And I think that or that conference this week, ladies and gentlemen, that happened in Washington that was televised on C-SPAN and televised on intermittently on CNN was the launch of the American Islamist Party. Not called the Muslim Brotherhood, but basically a new separatist political party launched. They may claim to be at home on the left, but they've got ideas that don't fit into the right or the left because they're Islamist. 
They have economics that are socialist. They have uh, 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 cultural values that are far to the right of anything in America. And their theocratic ideas are pre-American revolution. So those things make them their own party. They won't recognize it because in America we don't have religious parties. So they form this Muslim collective. It's not about diverse diversity to this collective is ethnic diversity. It's cultural. It's not ideological diversity. So how did they treat Muslims for progressive values, which I, I still can't get over the fact that they actually lended their logo to the sponsorship of this thing. But how did they treat the the courageous folks in Muslim for Progressive Values that at times do things very courageous with women leading prayer to uh, uh, gay marriages and other things that I may personally disagree with, but yet in our reform movement we have said that we would die to protect their freedom, to define their own identity, that we don't have clergy in Islam, that we don't have communication or excommunication. It is their right to decide how they interpret their scripture, and division is better, disparity and and diversity is better, that any individual Muslim that rejects their identity as Muslims is committing takfir or apostatizing other Muslims, which is not our faith. And we reject that in our Muslim Reform Movement Declaration, and we welcome all different organizations in our coalition. And that's why our American Islamic Forum for Democracy maintained our organizational identity, and the coalition itself is a diverse coalition of far left and right. And yet, Muslim for Progressive Values is not part of that coalition because I don't know why. At times they support us, at times they don't, but they've not been active participants in the Muslim reform movement. And I think at the end of the day, you can't help but think that part of it has to do with the fact that when push comes to shove, they'll even tolerate the Islamists, but they won't tolerate conservatives. They won't tolerate a President Trump while they even tolerate Islamists. And I just, that that is repulsive to me. I don't understand it. I think the Islamists are far, far greater threats domestically and globally to any sense of freedom and liberty. I think that the conservative movement is uh, obviously, yes, it's at odds with folks on the far left on a number of issues, but constitutionalism, a respect of the Bill of Rights, a respect of we can have debates about policy and position, but loyalty to our military, to our country, that we will defend our fellow citizens, regardless of their political ideas, is never an issue. For Islamists, it is. For Islamists, they're separatists. They don't understand or even don't believe in the lens that is American liberty. So let's listen for a second to Ilhan Omar asking responding to a question from an audience member that happens to actually be Ani Zonefeld, the head of the Muslim public, I'm sorry, Muslim progressive for progressive values. 
The other issue is on female genital mutilation and cutting. The Detroit case that actually, um, where the government, federal government lost the case um, because the law was 20 years old and et cetera, et cetera. I'd like to know, uh, will you be able to make a statement against FGM? Because that's an issue um, in Detroit. It would be really powerful if the two Muslim congresswomen, yourself and Rashida, would make a statement on this issue. Your second question is an appalling question because I, I always feel like there appalling. are bills that we vote on, um, bills we sponsor, um, many statements we put out, and then we're in, um, in a panel like this and the question is posed, could you and Rashida do this? And it's like, how often should I make a schedule? Like, does this need to be on repeat every five minutes? Should I be like, so today I forgot to condemn Al-Qaeda. Uh, so here's the Al-Qaeda one. Today I forgot to condemn FGM. So here it goes. Sarcasm. Today I forgot to condemn Hamas. So here it goes. Today I forgot. You know what I mean? I, I, it is... Um, a very frustrating question. It comes up. You can look at my record. I voted for bills um, doing exactly what you're uh, asking me to do. I have put out statements upon statements. There's a bill in, in Congress. There's a resolution that I am the co-author of that I voted out of the Foreign Affairs Committee. And so I am, I think, quite disgusted, really, to be honest, that as Muslim disgusted. legislators, we are constantly being asked to waste our time waste. Uh, speaking to um, issues that other people are not asked to speak to because the assumption exists is that we somehow support and are for Right? No, the, there is an assumption. So I want to make sure that the next time someone is in an audience and is looking at me and Rashida and Abdul and Sam, that they ask us the proper questions that they will probably ask any member of Congress oh. or any legislator or any politician. So and would not come with an accusation, accusation that we might support something that is so abhorrent, so offensive, so evil, so vile. Seriously. So she found it disgusting that she even had to answer that question. She dressed down one of the leading activist against FGM, a Muslim woman, a feminist Muslim woman who shares with her a lot of the politics of the left and dressed her down publicly. A sitting congressperson dresses down another activist who had the humbly ask, you heard her, you heard her question, it was a humble question about Rashida from Detroit. You just had physicians, Muslim physicians that were guilty of disfiguring and torturing and mutilating the genitals of young girls who had been trafficked from Minnesota, her district, trafficked from there. And Omar's response wasn't to acknowledge that her platform has a responsibility and a role to possibly lead these issues, to become a global leader on FGM where she can bridge 
the inhumanity that at the end she basically said, oh, it's horrific, it's gross. Okay, yeah, you said the words, but... And she said she's voted for some legislation. Look at the history of Minnesota. She voted for it, but then at the Senate it died. The AHA Foundation, also Ayan Hirsi Ali, who's of Somali origin, who has done a also an heroic amount of work about FGM, protecting the hundreds and thousands of girls that are vulnerable to this crime or have been victims. And she will tell you, read her op-ed about Omar in the Washington, I'm sorry, in the Wall Street Journal about Omar's anti-Semitism. But about the FGM, you know, female genital mutilation is not just something that happens to a few girls. There are five to 10,000 cases in the United States, if not more, that we don't know about. There are half a million to more that happen every year globally. It's going down. But that's because of the work of heroes that acknowledge the role that we within these communities need to face. When you have an imam in Northern Virginia just six months ago that we thankfully, to memory and others, had a video that exposed that he said that this was theologically right to circumcise women because they are born hypersexual and their sexuality needs to be tamed. That is what this, this, this Neanderthal said to a mosque. An imam in Northern Virginia, I think his name is El Sayed. For a congresswoman to be respected, she would have to acknowledge those facts that most Americans actually that do any research on this will know exist. But instead, she dresses down another Muslim activist. Most of the media reporting about this incident you heard here ignored the fact that the questioner was Muslim, which doesn't fit into their narrative about Omar's response, which is, I'm sick and tired of questions that are directed at me. They should be directed equally to all members of Congress. Well, should they, when they talk about white nationalism, should they be asking her? No. She can't fix white nationalism. She can complain about it, but she can't fix it. It needs to be fixed by those treading in those ideologies. And Ilhan Omar is raising money for Islamist, nonviolent Islamist groups that fuel imams that are radicalizing our community through jihadist movements and through misogynistic movements that are part and parcel of the FGM culture and the tribalism and patriarchy that abuses women. So, her reflex is not to answer questions, whether it's about her questionable marriage to possibly to her brother years ago, which still most of the media thinks is some conspiracy theory. And yet the Star Tribune, which is far left of center, had a three, 4,000 word report a few weeks ago that said that there are a ton of unanswered questions that need to be looked at. And finally, they're beginning to wake up. And that story is not going away because Omar's not answering any of it. The The reports about uh, uh, possible immigration fraud as she may have married her brother who was in London that needed to come to the United States, I guess. I don't know. It's just a bizarre story that we're not getting the details on. And it came out because of her using campaign finances to fund her personal lawyer that was exposed through complaints from um, 
another state legislator in Minnesota. And that then exposed that she had filed joint taxes with this gentleman that has the same name as her brother. And so the state newspaper had to report on it. It is amazing to me the the negligence of media reporting on this issue. But again, she won't answer any of these questions. And it's a typical knee-jerk reflex of Islamists. When it comes to uh, credibility, they have none, but they they create this victimization complex that manipulates Western openness, Western immigration concepts of, of, of welcoming those who are estranged from other societies. Yes, our societies, and I've talked to you about this on this podcast before, Yes, we should welcome those that want to come to freedom. But it's not just that they're escaping something. It's what are they coming to? Was Ilhan Omar coming with a passion for freedom and liberty? I never hear her talk about freedom and liberty and what the U.S. Constitution means to her. Whenever she talks about what America means, it dives into a narcissistic description of what her own story is. It doesn't talk about the societal or social contract of equality for all, of a secular liberal interpretation of our Constitution under God. It doesn't acknowledge the fact that Islamism and theocracy, be it abroad in various countries and imams and clerics that infuse those interpretations with blasphemy laws and apostasy. She never recognizes any of that. And it's dismissed with scare quotes and other things. So, ladies and gentlemen, she dressed down this questioner. I mean, think about your member of Congress, wherever you live. What would happen if, yeah, citizens often ask questions that get frustrating. We get asked the same question over and over and over again. Many of us in the public sphere. But for members of Congress to dress down a questioner, let alone in this Muslim collective conference. This conference was about how to empower Islamists. It was not about Muslim collective or Muslim diversity. It was about Islamist power and how to patronize, demonize, and marginalize real questions that our community needs to deal with. A, a a far lefty responded to me on Twitter and said, oh, you're just spreading hate against Ilhan Omar. Uh, we, why don't you, if you were really honest about this, you would just sit down and talk to her. Oh, really? This is what she does when a Muslim asks her an honest question in public. She dresses them down as an example of why she's sick and tired of asking about Al-Qaeda and Hamas and should she have a little repeat where on Monday she does this, this, just sarcasm. This is a person that you can have a conversation with. She's never going to answer a question, honestly. She's just about her own platform and advancing the Islamist agenda and raising money for her co-religionists that share her Islamist movement. So, bottom line, it's time that the anti-Islamists, that the reformists also as diverse as we are, we collectivize against the Islamists. 
that we show America that we are American first, that we look at our lens of this country through our Constitution, through our American identity, and we are ready to take on the Islamists. We are ready to confront them, and we should confront the left media and any other apologetic media that does not expose all the things I went through with you on these different interviews that she's had and on this Muslim collective caucus that I think will go down in history as one of the founding meetings in which the the agenda of the Islamists in America shifted, shifted from being a taqiyah, which in Arabic is a dissimulation, a lying about what they really are, to a more frontal formation of an American Islamist party. They came out to party at this collective, and it is not about partying celebration, but about a political party. Mark my word. And they need to be exposed. Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib are the tip of the iceberg. They are the platforming of it. They came from the Islamist farm team, and the Islamists are going to hitch their wagons to them to be normalized and to be mainstreamed, and they're taking on the the Democratic establishment, and uh, uh, um, Pelosi and others are bobbing and weaving trying to figure out what to do with them because they won't ideologically expose them or take them on. They simply want to benefit from their identity politics. This is Zudi Jasser. Thanks, as always, for being with me. It is a pleasure and an honor. We'll see you next week on Reform This. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.